Turn to your Bibles in 1 Samuel. We are studying the book of Samuel together called King of Kings because Jesus is the King of Kings. So 1 Samuel chapter 28. Kids, if you're going to Children's Church, now is the time. You may go to your classrooms. Kids are dismissed for Children's Church. Well, we're coming to the close. We're in chapter 28, 31 chapters. We're coming to the close of 1 Samuel. Here's a spoiler alert. King Saul's going to die real soon. If you didn't know that, you're welcome. (laughs) Meanwhile, the king, King Saul, the one Israel chose for themselves, has been spiraling out of control. We've seen that. He began his reign pretty well, not too shabby. Remember Samuel, the prophet chosen by God to anoint Saul the king back in chapter 10, that after he was proclaimed king of the land, he went into battle and he fought God's enemies, the Ammonites. And the people gathered and renewed the kingdom. Things looked good. But then things began to immediately go downhill. Chapter 13, King Saul offers an unlawful sacrifice. And then he refused a clear command of God in chapter 15 to go and strike the Amalekites. God told Saul, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty clear. But Saul refused. And at that point, God had enough and spoke through the prophet Samuel, telling King Saul, chapter 15, verse 26, God speaks to Saul through the prophet I will, I will not return with you, Samuel says to him, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Samuel's talking to Saul. You rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We know that man to be David, the second king of Israel. And over the past several chapters, Saul has been on this murderous campaign to take out David. He's trying to thwart the promise of God and the sovereignty of God, which is impossible. As David continues to flee from this from the hatred and, and the violence and the violently anger Saul, we said and we've been learning over the past few weeks that God, God is now is in the process of preparing David while he's in the wilderness, while he's being sought by Saul. David is learning to be king. David himself will learn obedience through suffering. Just as Hebrews tells us Jesus did. Learned obedience through suffering. Unlike Jesus, David will learn through failure. Jesus was sinless. And I love to expository, to, to preach expositorily through the scriptures because we learn what men and women of scripture really are, what they really struggle with. We see the faith, we see the failures. Whether it's Abraham's faith who went up to the mountain to, to, in obedience to God to sacrifice his son and then in two occasions said, here, you can have my wife, I don't need her. David, the beloved king of Israel, is a sinner in need of grace, in need of mercy like Abraham, like Noah, like Paul, like you and me this morning. And by faith, David receives the mercy and grace of God. And he's 
humbled by it. And that's the difference between King Saul, the first king of Israel, and King David, the second king of Israel, is one was humbled by their sin. One was repented by their sin. That was David, but not Saul. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chris preached in chapter 27, and we learned that David was at a very low place in his life. Chapter 27 talks about a low place of David. He's still running from Saul, but he chooses, if you remember, he chooses to handle his fears. And in desperation, he runs into the arms of God's enemies, the Philistines at Gath, the place of the giant. Before the giant was killed, Goliath, he lived in Gath. David seeks refuge. David seeks protection. David seeks security in all the wrong places. And as Pastor Chris pointed out, David looks inward. Chapter 27, he looks inward to his own heart for a solution rather than looking outward to the Lord and his word. Remember, Chris said he substituted faithfulness and trust with cleverness and pragmatism, relying entirely on his own understanding. Saul, excuse me, David joins the Philistines. It's so bad that he deceives the Philistines into thinking that while he's on these, on these attacking, uh, on these uh, marauder kind of uh, uh, ransacking communities, that he's attacking the people of Israel. He lies to the Philistines. Meanwhile, he's not attacking Israel. He's attacking the enemies of God. It gets so bad, if you remember, that Achish, the king of Gath, of the Philistines, the enemies of God, it gets so bad that the king demands David and his army to join them in battle against Israel. He makes David in chapter 28, the beginning of chapter 8, he makes David his personal bodyguard, ensuring that David's reputation now is marred permanently before the people of Israel. I mean, the next king of Israel is fighting against Israel? That's how chapter 28 begins. We're in chapter 28. I mean, what a mess. I mean, think about this for a minute, okay? Let's put this in context. Saul is becoming increasingly disobedient and unacceptable as God's king. David is in the enemy territories lying about what he's doing. Saul, the king of Israel, has gathered his army on multiple occasions, the army of Israel, to try and kill David, a a fellow Israelite, the newly appointed king. Meanwhile, David, the newly appointed king, has gathered his army, and he's with the enemies of God fighting the people of God. Saul is fighting against David with the armies of Israel implicating them. David has another army, and he's fighting with the Philistines against the army of God. Crazy. And then all of a sudden, as, this, as, as uh, Pastor Chris ended, there's this, come with me, we're going to fight. Gath, uh, the Philistines' uh, commander says, come with me, David, we're going to fight the Israelites. And the Israelites have gathered, and they're going to fight against the Philistines. And there's this battle about to take place, and all of a sudden, to be continued. Like, really? In the midst of this incredible standoff, the narrator interrupts in chapter 28. Let me turn there. Chapter 28, verse 3, and says, now Samuel. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, I interrupt this uh, program. we have to come back next week. Because there's something more important I want you to know. Even though David is in a bad place, right? David's in a bad place. But there's something more the narrator wants to show us. In fact, what we're going to read today, the rest of chapter 28, is not in chronological order. 
It's the narrator stepping in. This is more important. David is in a bad place, but King Saul has hit rock bottom. That's where we're at. I mean, if things can't get any worse for Saul, he is now going to find his solace, his, his guidance from a witch. He is without hope and he is without God. So what we're going to see in this reading is, number one, the desperate Saul. I mean, it goes from David fighting to Saul, and we're going to see a desperate Saul. We're going to see a disguised king. Then we'll look at a disturbed prophet, Samuel. And then finally, simply a dinner date. That's where we're at. That's our outline. Number one, a desperate Saul. Hear the word, the inerrant, infallible word of God. Verse three. Now, in the middle of all that's going on, the narrator says, Samuel has died. All of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his city. Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers, some of you have spiritists or wizards, out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, you got capital letters, covenant name of God, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, by Urim, or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And God had a blessing in the reading of the word. Endor, mind you, bewitched. For some of you who know that show. So notice the narrator begins by saying that Samuel is dead. That's the second time he said that. He said it first in chapter 25. It's not like, well, if you guys just forgot, let me remind you, Samuel is dead. That's not what's happening. The narrator is, is telling us, reminding us at this point that the spokesman of God is dead, that the, the prophetic, prophetic voice and the divine guidance of God to the king Saul is dead. Notice also the narrator. He continues by saying something positive about King Saul. In obedience to the word, in obedience to the law, in obedience to the word of God and the law of God, the king, it says, removed mediums and uh, necromancers from the land. The law of God is very clear about mediums, necromancers, and things of that nature. Let me read to you two passages of scripture so we're all on the same page. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, yes, W-H-O-R-I-N-G, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among the people. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. That's Leviticus. Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination 
or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, channeler, or a medium, or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Mediums, consulting the dead, necromancers, wizards, speak on behalf of the dead. And although they were driven out of the land of Israel by King Saul... Obviously, that sin was not driven out of the heart of King Saul. Now, go back in chapter 15. One thing I want to show you, what we just mentioned earlier. The prophet Samuel confronts him. God has rejected the kingdom, has taken him out as king. Um, God has torn the kingdom from him. But look what it says in chapter 15, verse 22. King Saul was told, go kill the Amalekites. Wipe everyone out. He doesn't do so. He doesn't, he doesn't obey the voice of the Lord. And Samuel says to him, chapter 15, verse 22, has the, Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want to hear it, Saul. You, you got animals to sacrifice. The Lord told you what to do. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen, not just hear but do, than the fat of rams. For rebellion, what you did was in rebellion of the word of God, is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has also rejected you from being king. Divination, trying to get revelation about the future and about God's plans, a hidden plan by using the demonic means or consulting the dead, Samuel says, in essence, is rejecting the word of the Lord. Your disobedience, your divination is idolatry. Notice what he does. He puts divination and idolatry in the same category, and that's the root of of using things like mediums, channels, necromancers, is putting them in the place where God alone belongs. God decides what he wants us to know from the hidden counsels of the plans that he has for our future. When the prophet Isaiah was confronted, confronted the people about mediums, he said in chapter 8, the prophet, chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Yes. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? The answer is no. If we go to mediums to talk to the dead or to find out something about our life that God has withheld from us, we put them that action in the position that only God should have. That is a great abomination of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, he put them out, but look what it says. The Philistines are, 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 are drawing against Israel. Chapter 27, verse 4 says that as Israel, as the Philistines came against Israel, King Saul in Israel, chapter 7, verse 4, knows that David's with the enemy. I want you to see that. The first time that Saul now is confronting the enemy when David's with them. We just talked about that a minute ago. So David is with them. He's facing 
the Philistines, and he's facing David as far as he's concerned. And look at verse 5. When he sees the army, he knows what's up. He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Fear is one of those main characteristics, right? One of the central characteristics of someone living apart from God. Fear is the byproduct, byproduct of, of no assurance. People are afraid of the future of financial ruin or health problems or, or maybe the opinions of others or impending death, as Saul, we'll see, is dealing with. But the existence of persistent fear someone who fears all the time, is a sign, the Apostle John tells us, that the love of God is far from us. We're not resting in the love of God. We're not resting in the sovereignty of God. We're not resting in the good providence of God and His unending grace and mercy, and there is fear. And Saul does, you know, I mean, it does say, look what it says. It says, Saul inquired of the Lord. But the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, by Urim, or by the prophets. God was silent. I think there's several reasons. First reason that we know, and we've seen this over and over again, God was silent because Saul refused to be obedient. Saul was disobedient and rebellion. Saul was more afraid of what others would think and say about him than he was of God. And when he inquired of the Lord, it was silent. God did not speak. God did not speak through, through uh, um, dreams. That was old time, in the Old Testament, many times God spoke through dreams. He didn't speak by the prophets. Samuel is dead. He didn't speak by the Urim. Remember that the Urim and Thummim was, was held in the ephod of the high priest? I mean, think about it. He killed all the priests, remember? In Nob. One priest had survived, Abathar, and he's... Abiathar, and he's with David. God's withholding an answer from Saul. That's, and God is silent. All right? God is silent. He's disobedient. Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short, that I cannot save. His ears are not dull, that I cannot hear. But your iniquity, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sin, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not like, la, 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 I can't hear. I mean, it's not that God can hear, but there's intimacy, there's relationship. Your sin has blocked that relationship with God because of your sin. And if we continue to live in willful disobedience, don't expect God's voice. Other times I think God has silenced us, if we were honest, is that we're not spending time in God's word. We're not hiding his word in our heart that we may not sin against him. And if we're not regularly in a diet of reading and studying God's word, when it's time for God to speak, he can't speak to us through his word. Maybe we don't gather regularly for preaching and, and the teaching on Sunday morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. Or maybe you're not gathering in community. We have community groups. We mentioned we're not a church with, we're a church of community. Maybe because you're not gathering and having people speak into your life. Or maybe sometimes God is silent because you're really not seeking the will and the way and the will and the word of God. Not really I think Saul, same thing here, he's inquiring of the Lord, but is he really inquiring? I don't think so. You know, in chapter 8, it's interesting. Samuel, excuse me, the, the Israelites say, we want a king. Remember chapter 8. We want a king that looks like everybody else who can fight our battles. We want the king we want. 
And Samuel steps in and says, listen, Israel, if that's the king you want, remember, he's going to take from you. Remember that? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. Chapter 8. And then he says, in the midst of that, I love this. And in that day, when the king takes, takes, and takes, and takes from you, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, when you cry out, the Lord will not answer you on that day. Isn't that interesting? The half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 4 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Think about Saul and David. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, Saul. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Hmm. Saul does not want to hear from God. Saul does not want to hear from God so that he can confess and repent of his stubborn rebellion and his persistent sin. Saul has no desire to change direction in his life, to change his heart, or to seek forgiveness. Saul's desire is for his own safety, his own skin, self-preservation. He's not, this is not a genuine inquiry, I do not believe. Instead, it's his attempt to say, Lord, I'm in trouble. I'm in that foxhole. I need your help now. Help me get out of this. Now, is there anything wrong with saying, God, I'm in a foxhole. I'm in trouble. I'm between a rock and a hard place. Get me out of this. No. Let's all raise our hand. We've done it. The question is, for what? For your glory or for God's glory? So that we can make much of him or that we make much of us? That's what's happening here. And what does he do? When the inquiry brought no satisfaction, he becomes desperate. And his next action represents the lowest of low. The lowest place this troubled king of Israel will go. In his desperation, he turns to his servants, verse 7. Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. The very commandment of God that he so diligently enforced now become his go-to. And what's so weird about that passage is they didn't say, all right, well, give us a couple days. We've got to find one. Because remember, they're not in the land anymore, so it's going to be trouble. They're like, oh, we know where one is. Really? Just like that. No Google, no, you know, nothing. We know exactly where they are. There's one in Endor. I don't know how they knew that right away, but they did. That's interesting. For Saul and his men, he's going to take two with him, to go to Endor means where Saul is now. He has to cross enemy territory to get to Endor. (laughs) In order to see this woman, he's crossing, a desperate man is crossing enemy territory. Now, family... Don't raise your hands, but let's all agree. We could do some really stupid things when we are desperate, right? Desperation is never a time to to stop seeking the will and the word and the ways of God actually all the more. You know, facing ruin, people sometimes 
turn in their desperation to any resources that they think will give them some sort of hope rather than turn to God. Some sort of direction rather than turn to God. Some sort of relief rather than turn to God. So it is with desperate Saul. So he goes and he's disguised. Look at verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, put on another garment and went. He took two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. He said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know that Saul has done, you know, how he has cut off the mediums and he cut off the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Notice a couple of things. Number one, it's nighttime. Yeah, it's helpful for a man in disguise and two of his comrades to get through the enemy territory to Endor at night. I get that. But many times night in the scripture is a euphemism for evil. And I think the narrator wants to see this. And it's just amazing how nighttime is the time favored for these seances. And and, and it's like the the darkness and the, the people who dwell in the night fit to communicate with those who communicate in the night. It just seems a nighttime thing to do. And Saul comes and says, basically, please practice divination. That's what he's saying. Practice divination and, and contact the dead and bring up whomever I tell you. And at first the woman's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this could be a sting operation here. I don't know who you are, but I, I, I don't think so. Because you know what the king does when he finds out about this. I'm not, I'm not going to be caught disobeying the will of the king. And look at verse 10. Rub your eyes. I can't believe it says this, but it does. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. What a sad irony. Saul swears an oath by the Lord, by the life of the Lord, as he seeks help from a source that the Lord has clearly condemned. And he gives her an oath, invokes the Lord to grant immunity to the one who breaks the Lord's commands. Foolish, blasphemous. Verse 11. Then the woman said, all right, who am I, who do I want me to bring up? Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Interesting. The king said to her, do not be afraid. I mean, I'm scared to death. Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and he paid homage. Now commentators are all over the map when it comes to why she was so afraid. I, I, I think she was freaked out that she you know, actually brought up Samuel, that she had, was somewhat successful. Some people say, well, no, she kind of freaked out because the, the vision that she is seeing is very different than all the other visions as this woman practiced her divination. Some commentators actually believe that it was not Samuel that came up. It was actually a demon, an evil spirit. 
mediums and spiritists and, and channelers do not have the authority to summons or talk to the dead, but they do communicate with evil spirits posing as people who had died. Hebrews 9 tells us, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, judgment, not visiting. That's why in 1 Kings 22, they're called lying spirits. Remember, family, Satan and his demons have been around a long time and are observant of what is going on with you and those you know and those that have died and those what people have said as well. But I do believe in this incident, I take it as face value that Samuel actually was summoned and spoke to Saul. This passage does not say the medium had the right authority to bring up Samuel from the dead, but that I believe God allowed Samuel to speak to Saul, that God himself intervened and raised up Samuel. God himself, God can do this. God can bring Samuel back. God can do it if he wants to. And if you don't believe that, you have a problem with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration when he spoke to Elijah and Moses, who were as equally dead. So let's make a couple observations. Let me, just, let me just make a couple observations. Number one, biblical truth. Evil demons and Satan are real. The Bible teaches us there are angels that worship and serve God and also wicked angels called demons that with Satan rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. And now they serve Satan, uh, demons do, until the day of the Lord when they are finally faced their eternal consequences of their sin in a place called the lake of fire of hell. If you don't believe that, again, then Jesus is a phony because he taught it. He had exercised authority over demons, clearly in Scripture. And this cultic stuff, the spiritism channeling new age is clearly taught in Scripture as being wicked, paganism, and always, always forbidden for God's people. Nowhere does it say it's not real. Nowhere does it say it doesn't happen. Nowhere does it say that there's not something about this stuff, but it does consistently say that it's wicked, it's paganism, it is forbidden for God's people. Even Moses, back in the day in Egypt, the people there replicated what Moses was doing. Jesus himself said, false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So it's to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Family, we are surrounded by evil forces, evil ways to seek guidance, but it is wicked, it is paganism, and it is forbidden. Whether it's tarot cards, seeking the dead among the living, channeling Ouija boards back in my day, known as spirit, talking boards, horoscopes, whatever it is that you are choosing to find the future, to seek guidance outside the will and the ways and the word of God is paganism. It's, it's paganism, it is wicked, and it is forbidden. And we have this tendency in our culture, we either make fun of the spirit world, you know, pea-spitting girls that are head-spinning, or, or we ignore the, the spirit world, we say it doesn't exist. But the Bible's pretty clear. God, there is dark supernatural powers to which mediums and diviners sought access, both in the ancient world and today. And God's people, the Israelites and God's people today, the church, are forbidden to partake of that. It is off limits. The Bible says, we hear Saul disguising himself, and the Bible says that Satan disguised himself as what? An angel of light. Notice this medium. She sees Samuel. She not only recognizes him, I believe, but she also says, you're Saul. 
You're Saul. You're, you're, you're the king. He steps in and says, listen, you're okay. Tell me what you see. And she describes this, this, this vision as what it says, God-like, Elohim, divine being. And she's frightened. And he's wrapped in a robe. No wonder. Samuel immediately recognizes him because he remembers the day in which he sees the robe of, of Samuel when he has been told that the kingdom will be torn from him. This is a desperate Saul, a disguised king who meets Samuel. And look, a disturbed prophet, look what, look what Samuel says. He's like, all right, I'm done talking to you, lady. I want to talk to Samuel. And Samuel's like, why are you bothering me? <laughs> why are you disturbing me? I was, I was in a place of departed spirit. Everything was going fine. And s- selfish Saul is not interested really about Samuel. Look what he says in verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm really sorry, brother. Didn't mean to bother you. I just need a minute of your time. No. Doesn't say any of that. I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me. He answers me no more by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Notice what he says. What's What's the plan? I want to know the plan. Not, I want to return in my communion to God. I want more of the Lord. What do I need to do? No. What is the plan? It's only one plan. If the Philistines are attacking Israel and you're the king, what are you supposed to do? Fight back. Fight back. That's what you're a king for. What he wants to know is, am I going to win or am I going to lose? That's what, that's what counselors, that's what prophets do. He's terrified of his death. He knows his kingdom is being ripped from him, and he's seeking not the glory of God. He's seeking the glory of man. He's a hopeless misery right now. And, 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 and he's been abandoned by God, and he's desperate. The Scripture speaks a lot about men and women when they're filled with the Spirit of God, that they have boldness. Not being a jerk. We're talking about boldness and love and filled with the Spirit and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Courage is connected to the Holy Spirit. Saul is devoid of the Spirit. We know that from earlier. He lacks the courage. He's afraid. God has turned away from him. Verse 16, Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has returned from you, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Verse 18. Because, I told you this already, you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalekites. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul doesn't tell, excuse me, Samuel does not tell Saul what he wants to know. Rather, he, he rebukes him. Why, why, why are you calling me up? I'm just reminding you what I told you in chapter 15. Nothing new under the sun. And no way does Samuel say, well, now that you went through all this trouble, um, let me change the word of God. Let me, let me give you a new message. No, he gives him the same message he had already told him. In fact, if you notice in this text, four verses, he used the word Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, covenant name of God, seven times. The Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said. What do you expect? The word of the Lord. Samuel is not going to tell Saul what to do on his own. He's on his own. But notice it gets better. Verse 19. It's like, all right, 
You come all the way here. You snuck in enemy territory. You awakened me from the dead. I, I'm now speaking to you when I was in a restful place. You want something to go back and chew on? I got something for you. Verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, just so you know, since we're here, you and your son shall be with me dead. The Lord, just in case you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. God brings up the dead from Sheol, Samuel, and brings down the living to Sheol, exalting the humble and giving grace uh, and abasing the proud. So when, when, Samuel, when Samuel tells Saul, you will be with me, does not mean heaven. We're in the Old Testament. Sheol was a place of the dead. That's why Samuel was brought out from the earth. They believed and, and understood Sheol to be a place under the earth where all the dead souls go. It's only in the New Testament that we read more about the resurrection from the dead. We read more about uh, um, hell and heaven and all those other things. It's what's called progressive revelation. In other words, God didn't say, here's a book, boom. Oh, I got everything. He slowly, methodically, historically, truthfully revealed his plans of salvation and things of theology like heaven and hell. That's why we know more in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. Just a little side note. You will be with me. You will be dead. That's the point. And you know what? I don't want you to miss this, though. This chapter is not ultimately about witchcraft, but the sovereignty of God, the triumph of his kingdom, the promise, plans, and provision of God. Saul, you and your sons will be dead. The kingdom will be taken from you tomorrow. God speaks in the midst of this. And Saul, really given over what Romans 1 says to a reprobate mind, He's exchanging the truth that God would give him for a lie. And he's gone to the place of witchcraft. And the story of Endor reminds us all of the importance and clarity of the divine word. Because he who speaks to the dead soon will join the dead. In desperation, the word of God was vanished, and now he just waits. He waits. Davis, Ralph Davis in his commentary writes this. Saul's quest should have been to face Yahweh, not to seek Samuel. His need was not for information, but communion. Not so much to prepare for battle, but to recover God's presence. Saul, it seems, wanted the results of God's favor more than he wanted God's favor, God himself, end quote. At that point, Samuel falls at once. Look at verse 20. Full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. No strength in him, for he had not eaten all day and all night. Now remember, Saul is taller than everyone. (laughs) Remember we learned that. He is handsome, he is strong. And now he is flat out. Full length on the ground. The only thing that's available to him is this woman, this evil woman who practices divination. King Saul has never sought repentance, only remorse. And it's sad. It's a sad story. Here he is flat on the ground with no strength. He's desperate. He disguises himself and runs to a diviner. 
He disrupts the prophet and gets the same message, and now he learns you're going to die tomorrow. Remember, this chapter is not in chronological order. This is just up on your screen. He will die the next day. A desperate Saul, a disguised king, a disrupted prophet, now finally a dinner date. Verse 21. And a woman came to Saul. When she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I did what you asked. I have taken my life in my hands, and I have listened to what you said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. It's the witch talking. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. I mean, I know she's an evil diviner, but she sounds better than Saul, right? I mean... Saul's a wicked one here, but anyway, she's wicked too. But verse 23, he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together, the two of them and the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth, sat on the bed. Now the woman had fattened, had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread. Verse 25 to close. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that Night, in the middle of the night, in the dwelling of a woman who consults the dead, Saul gets up from the floor, from the earth, gets on the bed, and watch this woman, a familiar thing that happens in people's homes, preparing a meal, killing a calf, a big meal, kneading dough for baking. At first, he refuses. The two men come along, and this woman, this, this, what the old, like I said, the old King James, the witch, convinces Saul sharing this meal. Just as Eve was convinced to listen to the enemy, to Satan in the Garden of Eden, she convinced Saul to share a meal, to have table fellowship with demons. Saul is at the low of his life, the brink of death. His last night, he finds himself in deep desperation, something he has never seen, never gone as low as he can go. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God, is to be judged by God like Adam and Eve was, and so was Saul. Saul is fed a meal fit for a king that night, yet he was unfit to be king. It is Saul's last supper. Until he goes out, look what it says, into the night. Three times in this chapter, it's night, it is night, it is night. What does that scene remind you of? It is evening, it is night. There's a presence of evil, there's a dinner. And then there was silence. In the gospel according to John on the night, when Jesus was betrayed and the next day be crucified, it says he was at night. It was the last night. It was the Passover meal. A meal gathered with his disciples where they would share unleavened bread commemorating the great exodus from Egypt. It was that night, during that night, during that supper that Jesus dipped a morsel of bread and gave it to Judas. And the scripture says, he took it and Satan entered into him. And after receiving the bread, Judas, the Bible says, immediately went out and it was night. The last we heard of Judas, he goes out, commits suicide. It's really the last we're really going to hear of Saul. It's a very little bit. And then he goes out and he commits suicide. But family, let me tell you something. It gets darker. The scripture tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, 
Darkness, complete and utter darkness covered the hill of Calvary. As Jesus died for our evil and sin by his perfect life and paying the debt for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, taking our judgment against sin, there was silence. In the final hour, Jesus cried out, asking, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he heard nothing in return. Jesus goes into the night. He's abandoned by God, judged by God for you and for me. For you and for me so that you will never have to be judged for your sins. You will never ever have to be abandoned by God. You can have the light of life and never go into darkness. This communion table represents, reminds us of the gospel. It not only reminds us of the gospel, I hope it reminds us that we are no better than Judas. We are no better than Saul. All of us deserve separation from God because of our sin. To be placed into outer darkness. To be eternally separated in hell from God. But the glory of the gospel is that God's son went through the darkness of God's absence for us. The darkness and agony of God forsakenness on Golgotha. Jesus has walked out into the outer darkness in order that you might walk in the light of life. He's able to give life. He's able to give light and to give hope for those who trust in him. Ricky started in Colossians. It says, teaches us what God has done in his son when he died. It says, the record of death that stood against us, he set aside nailing it to the cross. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, all seen and unseen authorities, including Satan and his emissaries, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him in the gospel. When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and he was defeated. Jesus inviting all of his followers to come to the table to confess your sins. Maybe there are ways in which that you sought the guidance, you sought the future, the things of God that are outside the will and the word of God. Come, confess. Repent, that means turn from sin. God will forgive you. There's not a sin that you have committed that God will not forgive a repented sinner. The band's going to play if you're new here. The band plays, we're going to do business with God quietly and in your seat, confessing and repenting and then celebrating. Celebrating the work of Jesus, his body and the bread broken for you, the blood, this cup that was spilt on your behalf. We only ask if you're not a follower of Christ, you're not devoted follower of Jesus, if you've not said in your heart, he is my Savior, he is my Lord, Then you just sit in your seat, sing, pray. We love you. We're glad you're here. We want you to keep coming back. But the table is for the family of God. If you're a follower and devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, come. Confess, repent, and celebrate. We're sinners. Christ died. Christ rose again. Keller likes to say. We look at the cross. We see how wicked we truly are. And what great lengths God had to go through because of our sin. But we look back at the cross and we see how much we're loved, and he was glad to redeem us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the work of the cross. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need for faith and trust in you. You are a good father in heaven, and you care about your children. Father, may we as a people always seek your face, your will, your ways, 
through your word. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. May we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in all we say and do. Spirit of God, come, lead us into repentance and lead us in celebration of the work of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.